Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Your mind is your worst enemy. Do your thinking before you start riding your bike. Once the pedals start to turn, wrap yourself in the sensations of the ride, the smell of the air, the sound of the tyres, the feeling of flight as the bicycle rolls over the road. And as we just wind down that Latin beat on that very chilly, brisk, beautifully clean air of Melbourne this morning on this lovely Monday morning, you're listening to the Yarrabug Radio Show here on 3CR, on the transistor in the tr- in the kitchen, podcasting, streaming. Good morning. <laughs> Sorry, I'm freezing. Speechless. I'm, uh, speechless. I'm speechless. <laughs> it is the Yarrabug Radio Show. Many thanks to Amy Goodman for Democracy Now. Always a great show. That quote from this morning, keeping your mind quiet while you're riding a bike, comes from the Vela Marti. We've got a big show coming up here. We've Elliot Fishman has returned to the studio of Yarrabug Show once again. Elliot, good to see you again. Good to be here. Listeners will remember, of course, um, Elliot is the Loan Director of the Institute of Sensible Transport and has been spending a bit of time in the Netherlands, and we're going to have a bit of a report on that. And after missing, because a little bit of a coldly running through the family, Faith, <laughs> Faith is joining us back again. Good morning, Faith. Great to be here, Val. It's a beautiful morning this morning, it's isn't beautiful. it? I'm not sure if anybody gets up. Some of those mornings are lovely. Following up from a beautiful weekend, should we go into bike moments? We should go into bike moments. Have you got a bike moment, Val? <laughs> I have. Uh, thanks, Faith. I've actually I'm drawn between telling two of them actually. I want to. I wanted to have a positive bike moment, but I've unfortunately had a couple of negative bike moments lately. The only time I've been twice car doors, both times by pedestrians getting out into the bike lane at a red light. I came within. I reckon a hundred mils of getting doored again in exactly that fashion. The only difference this being was it was a police car and the police woman <laughs> who got out of the car door apologised profusely. Did she issue herself with a fine? <laughs> uh, look, I was, the interesting part is actually from doing another job, um, I had to pick up some recovered bicycles from the Fitzroy Police Station. This was one of the women at the Fitzroy Police Station who I collected all these bikes on. So it had a sort of quiet sort of synergy all by itself. I think she recognised me but couldn't put, you know, a finger on it. Anyway, 
was quite funny. And the other one, which um, well, I'll just bring up as in a general round of conversation, as the swallows return to Capistrano, the ninjas are back on Melbourne's <laughs> roads. I nearly got cleaned up by somebody coming straight through one of those dark little roundabouts. Not one piece of... I couldn't see him at all. Anyway, the ninjas are back. Elliot, you've got a bike moment. I know you've been preparing. Well, I, I was riding through Carlton Gardens, as I, I know you're not meant to do uh, these days, and uh, I got swooped by a magpie, which is, I think, the first time either I or anyone that I've heard of has been swooped in May <laughs> in Melbourne. <laughs> you haven't heard of climate change? <laughs> the, nesting, the nesting season has moved it's around. Moved. Clearly. <laughs> They're interesting magpies. I'm always a little bit... Um, um, defensive and magpie's behaviour, I should say. I'll leave it at that. Faith? I have a bike moment. I uh, um, did something I haven't done before. I uh, We're going to Japan in a few weeks, and um, I knew this with one part of my brain, but I hadn't kind of put two and two together. The house we bought in Nisiko is about 400 metres up a mountain, and it suddenly occurred to me that whenever we leave that house, we're going to have to ride down... And whenever we come home, we're going to have to ride up it. So, um, and living in Brunswick and spending most of my time riding Brunswick to the city in St Kilda, that there's not a lot of uh, 400 metre elevations. So uh, I went out to Humevale with a friend, just because we worked out the profile was very similar. It's not incredibly steep this particular mountain, but just just so just so I thought I know you know, and uh, and that was fine. That was a nice little ride up. Um, but I hadn't at all thought about coming down. <laughs> and and uh, it was fine coming down in the end once you'd, I'd convinced myself to relax. But, um, yeah, there was a bit of a moment where uh, I thought, I really don't like coming down. Any <laughs> 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 good breaks? <laughs> well, it, it's not. I'd much rather climb a hill. Mm, yeah. Than descend yeah, a steep hill, I've got to say. My memories of, you know, touring bikes, you've got another 20 kilos on the back and you you looked at the bottom of the hill in Tasmania, you go, how am I going to stop? So that's the first question. Of course, you get halfway down, you realise, I'm not stopping. No, <laughs> there will be no stopping. Uh, and no, I'm expecting certainly to, uh, I thought, well, at least, you know, I'll come back from this next holiday. Um with uh, that pretty much sorted, I expect, my desensitised to coming down hills. It certainly keeps you awake. It, it, you know, you're really focused on it. You're a good descender, Elliot. Uh, yeah. About 10 years ago, I bought a bike with disc brakes and um, never looked back <coughs> after that. Ah. That's, that's what we're taking. It's, and I think, I suspect the thing that will take my mind off my own fears is watching my son go down it. That will... Focus me on a whole yeah. other set of fears <laughs> because he'll be round the next hairpin while you're still approaching <laughs> yes. it from the back. It'll all be gone. Um, speaking of pleasurable rides, <clears throat> big protest on Q Boulevard yesterday on Sunday. Yeah, good, great turnout for the uh, bully tax ride, as it was uh, called. Organised by uh, and and this is going to be awful because I can't pronounce his surname, George. Mahalidis, um, which, yeah, had over a 1,000 cyclists protesting. For anyone who doesn't know, for over a year now, someone has been um, distributing large volumes of furniture tax on Q Boulevard, which is 
a great training run for lots of cyclists and a commuting run for several as well. And a Sunday morning recreational yeah. ride for a lot of people. Uh, yeah. And um, the, they've caused, I can't remember the estimates, thousands of punctures. Yeah, um, I would think. And uh, they haven't. the police have been investigating it. They haven't been able to find who's doing it. The Burundaro Council have spent $70,000 a year um, cleaning up with a, a magnetic device to try and remove them a couple of times a week. Uh, there are children and pets being injured by them. Um, it's a, quite a serious problem. And what, the investigation's ongoing, but I think cyclists felt that, look, it's, it's been over a year and Man. it needs to be stepped up a level. And uh, it was pr- apparently cleaned on Saturday night. It was cleaned the night before and still someone, someone had distributed got out them again. Someone got Saturday night and threw them down yeah. the road. Ah, the perseverance of those activists. Go figure. <laughs> and it's it's Sorry. an interesting thing because it's, yeah, yeah. you know, it's the city of Burundara have, are spending $70,000 to try and manage the tax. Yeah. And yet it's probably a local ratepayer who is doing this. If, if it's someone who is, because the assumption oh, is no. that it's someone who's annoyed by the cyclists collecting early in the morning and chatting loudly or doing, you know. That's what as compared of... to the people burning out <laughs> motorbikes yes. or having the party on the um, on that bridge across the freeway on Saturday nights? You ever ridden past there? No, never. Have. The bridge that goes across back up to the next hill on the Q Boulevard yeah. that crosses the freeway every so often on the Sunday morning. There are more Kentucky Fried dead crappers <laughs> on the on the side of the road with pre-sweetened alcohol drinks all over the place. It's a bit a little bit of a party spot there on some Sunday night on some Saturday nights. Yeah. And look, from Saturday to Sunday, there aren't virtually many cars. I mean, it yeah. used to be quite a notorious place for you know people dragging off motorbikes, which are still there a, a fair bit. And people doing burnouts or trying to take corners crazily in cars because they used to always go off the edge. Now it's virtually just cyclists. It's a much better place for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it, it forces cyclists. They can't ride in the shoulder because that's where the tax always distributed. They end up riding, uh, you know, over in the lane where you can see the tyre prints yeah. have been. So, um, you know, that's going to be clear, which if the occasional car comes along, it, it does slow them down and there's a big wide road and only a small section can be used. And before we bleed off into infrastructure building, Q Boulevard's interesting because there's a white line painted on most of Q Boulevard, which most people assume is the bike lane. It's not. No. It is the parking spot. Yeah. And it's never signposted or anything. And... I've had a couple of, you know, interactions with motorists there because they assume that you're on their road and you should be in your bike lane where it's not even marked at all. It's quite – in those parts it can be a little bit – you're not sure where you are. Yeah. I've been told off once. Right, you know how with a separated bit, it's a two-way bit. I've had a lot of motorists scream at me when I don't use that part of the path and go down on the road, which most cyclists do. Mm. It's more dangerous actually going on the shared path if you're going the opposite direction. Yeah. Um, anyway. And the other item of news I just wanted to mention was the Participate Melbourne survey is still ongoing until the 8th of May, which is this weekend. 
So this is where um, the City of Melbourne would like to know what you need done to use your bike more often in Melbourne. So it's aimed at residents, commuters, people who work there, and also in particular at people who at the moment don't ride there. They, uh, If you go to um, participate.melbourne.vic.gov.au, you can uh, put some spots on a CrowdSpot map. You can put in your comments on what you would like to see, if if it's more infrastructure or if it's traffic calming or if it's just ideas you have about what would it take to get you on a bike and if you do ride, what you'd like to see improved. There you go. And how the Dutch do that, we'll be back to pick it apart in detail in just a minute. I'm so Hey Jodie, I'm so excited. I just can't hide it. Oh, just in the words of the Pointer Sisters, hey? Why? What's happening? The new 3CR t-shirts are coming out. We had a competition, Kate Reid won it, and it's so beautiful. It's got roses and a love heart, and then the caption is, resistance is fertile. Oh, too deadly that, eh? So in order to get one, go to the 3CR website and follow the link to shop, and they're $30. $30? Oh, what a bargain. And $25 for kids. You'll be able to secure one for yourself because they're in hot demand. Yay, get one now. And you're back listening to the Yarrabug Radio Show on Melbourne's 3CR. As we mentioned, our studio guest today is Dr. Elliot Fishman, Director of the Institute for Sensible Transport, and he's just returned after a stint at doing some postdoctoral research at uh, Utrecht University in the centre of the Netherlands. So he's uh, here to share his thoughts about um, riding in the Netherlands compared to Australia. <laughs> Must be a bit of a shock coming back. Yeah, look, it is. I mean, obviously I was expecting it to be... Uh, a bit different uh, coming back to Australia, but uh, I really have been um, shocked much more than I was expecting, just the level of um, infrastructure, the level of awareness and respect from motorists. So it hasn't been an entirely pleasant experience um, getting back on the bike here compared to what it was like in the Netherlands. Yeah, I think coming back you have to be extremely selective about you know where you uh, ride afterwards. Um, so what struck you as if we... Because the Netherlands has a very high um, rate of bike users modal share um, compared to Australia. What struck you as the major drivers behind those differences? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, th- you're right. The Netherlands is well known for being a, a cycling country. 27% of trips are done by bike in the Netherlands, and that's been remarkably constant over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, 60% of trips uh, from school children are done by bike uh, in uh, some cities, uh, 40% of all trips are done by bike. So it is an incredibly uh, strong cycling country. I think the, there are a number of reasons why the Netherlands has been able to position itself um, as the, the leader um, globally in, in bike transport. I think the first one is their um, uh, uh, Protestant Calvinist ideology that, that has um, enabled them to, I think, have a, a preference towards modest modesty um so and that in extends not just to other parts of their life but but also just to how they transport themselves so being able to um get by on a um 100 euro bike uh that's you know held together by by elastic bands and and string is something that culturally is is very 
consistent with this Calvinist ideology of, of being modest. So that's helped. Also, their strong planning culture, which stems from the fact that 60% of the population live below sea level. They've had a strong confidence in government planning to be able to create a situation in which they can essentially all live together on a fairly small parcel of land and, and not get wet. And, and that culture has now been extended to other parts of government planning, and that includes transport planning and cycling. And so they have a very clear road hierarchy in the Netherlands, uh, and that's something that I've really noticed lacking in Australia. So in the Netherlands, they essentially have three categories of road. They have motorways, uh, where cyclists aren't allowed to ride. And on those motorways, motorways account for about 50% of all car kilometres are travelled on motorways, um, which is much larger than in most other countries. They actually have the densest network of motorways anywhere in Western Europe. Um, then they have distributor roads, which are kind of roads like, I guess to put it in a Melbourne context, roads like uh, Punt Road or Alexander Parade, Victoria Parade. So they're, they're major roads. They've got at least two lanes in each direction. Um, they carry large amounts of traffic, including heavy vehicles. Um, and in those roads, they have separated bike paths, usually uh, one on each side of the road, so one going in one direction and one coming back the other way. So that is just the general standard. There are occasionally roads where they don't have that, but those are in the severe minority. And then finally, the other road category, they have uh, what they would call access roads, and they're very local roads. They don't carry heavy traffic. The speed limit is no more than 30 kilometres an hour, uh, sometimes as low as 15 kilometres an hour. And there they usually don't have a great deal of bicycle infrastructure, but the road environment is such that um, it's clear that cyclists have um, at least equal access and sometimes even priority over yeah. motorised traffic. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. When I was living in the Netherlands, um, I used to being in Australia <clears throat> and thinking, oh, let's avoid the, the freeway, let's take the back roads. It's impossible in a car to get from one town to another on back roads unless you know the area really well. It's everything. Every sign you come to directs you back to that freeway and stops you from using those, even that middle tier of roads, yeah. unless you absolutely have to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess one thing that really strikes visitors when from Australia when you first arrive in the Netherlands is um, the diversity in the people who are riding compared to here. Is that something that's encouraged by their planning and infrastructure? How does that help create that? Well... In Australia, about 1.2%, in most cities, about 1.2% of all trips are done by bike. Um, in certain areas of the city, it's higher, of course, and so in a place like Brunswick or North Fitzroy, you might get 12 or 13% of trips to work done by bike, um, City of Yarra being a leader in that. But um, in the Netherlands, where such a large proportion of trips are done by, si- by bicycle, it means that it, it appeals to a much larger group of people. So, for instance, uh, when I used to walk down from my um, office building at Utrecht University and go to the underground undercover bike parking, which and all employees had access to this. Um, I would occasionally see the, the head of the department of, um, of my department, Department of Geoscience, get on his bike. Um, the, uh, the vice chancellor would ride. Um, the head of um, the one of the largest banks in the Netherlands rides. And in fact, it's not just that bank, but all of the banks. Um, so it's it's widespread. So, you know, captains of industry, uh, the royal family ride their bikes. They ride a, a load-bearing um, uh, Dutch cargo bike. I mean, so 
it really just spans all uh, segments of the population. And even now, some of the young um, Moroccan migrants whose parents moved to the Netherlands in the early 80s, they're now riding at, at almost similar levels to, to native Dutch. And, and we uh, quite often would see um, three Muslim women on bikes, one being dinked on the front, one being dinked on the back, and then a rider in the seat. So it, it just covers a full segment of the population. And, and the other thing is that the quality of the bikes, they don't, uh, they're not avid cyclists in the way that someone in Australia might describe themselves as an avid cyclist with, and they'll be able to talk about the componentry of, of their bike or the, the lightweight materials that it's constructed of. In the Netherlands, they're all basically just steel bikes, plain bikes. I used to play tennis with a guy who's quite a, a senior manager at a, a technology company in Amsterdam on a really good wage, but he would ride a bike that was worth probably 75 euros um, and it was a, a girl's bike a, a step through frame so they it just spans the the entire um i guess breadth of of uh the country there aren't it's not a particular subgroup that likes cycling mm. Every, almost everyone cycles at least uh once during the course of a regular week yeah yeah and i think it's it's very true they, they do have that subset of avid riders but they're not highly visible because the rest of the population are using bikes as transport around them. So um, one thing, one of the big differences between Australia and the Netherlands and Australia and most countries is the mandatory helmet law, which I guess feeds into ideas around perceived risk and uh, also, you know, it's an obvious difference in road rules. How much impact do you think when you see the difference in the two attitudes towards helmet use how much of a role do you think that plays? Well, I think that's an area that is still it requires a lot more research to answer some really important questions around uh, what you know whether mandatory helmet laws are something that works to improve community safety generally, or whether it, it hampers it. And I think there are some really valid points on both sides of that argument. But I'll tell you, I would certainly, as someone who uh, cares a lot about road safety, having done my PhD at the Centre for Accident Research and Road Safety. Uh, I would feel much safer riding in the Netherlands without a helmet than I would riding in Australia with a helmet. Uh, a helmet only uh, protects you from a certain portion of injuries, so it's not going to protect you from a, a, a broken femur or, or a crushed pelvis. And uh, I think what the Netherlands has done over between, say, 1976 and now is that they've uh, dropped the number of fatalities, uh, cyclist fatalities, by 80%, and they've done that through... Uh, lowering speed limits, uh, so you don't have to interact with cars going fast in the Netherlands. It just doesn't happen. And um, and separated bicycle infrastructure, and that has brought down the number of fatalities from 50 fatalities per billion cycles kilometred, billion cycles, kilometers. billions yeah, <laughs> kilometres <laughs> cycles, cycles. Sorry, mixing up my words yeah. there. To, um, I think kilometres is a great word for describing. <laughs> <laughs> to, to 10 fatalities per billion Cycle kilometres. Yeah. So it, it, it's become a lot safer yeah. in the Netherlands and they've done that without uh, helmet legislation. And, in fact, uh, it, it varies from report to report, but at least it, it's less than one in a 1,000 cyclists in the Netherlands would wear a helmet. And most of those helmeted cyclists are wearing Lycra on racing bikes, doing recreational sure. cycling and going fast. Yeah. No. And, and, that, and that's that... one of the big differences. In the Netherlands, the average cycling speed is about 16 kilometres an hour or a bit less even. Well, and that was... Well, I noticed living there, they they have a, a clear distinction between people engaging in sport, um, 
and they they never confuse that with transport and and even when I was first starting to speak Dutch and I remember calling out to my uh, father-in-law that uh, the cycling was on the television but used the wrong word and um, no one came running into the room excitedly and when I finally went to try and explain myself they, they thought, well, why? Because what I'd said was something that would translate pretty much as the bicyclists are on the television which and meaning the people doing transport and, and so they were thinking, well, who cares? <laughs> but... Um, and, and everyone I know who does indulge in a bit of sport cycling, you know, when they get on their road bike, they do wear a helmet. None of them uh, confuses that with the need to wear it when they're going down to the station to jump on the train. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and as much as anything else, it's a bit of a, it's a look as well. So they yeah. see cyclists in the Tour de France wearing the Lycra, wearing yeah. a helmet. And for a lot of, um, you know, carbon fibre racing cyclists on the weekend, they want to look the part. And yeah. And so helmets become part of that. And a good example it's is part my, of the uniform. Yeah, my neighbour used to do that on a Saturday morning. But if you saw him on a, on a Monday morning dropping his child off at childcare, he wouldn't have a helmet, and neither would the child. So yeah. it's a completely different activity. Yeah. yeah, and it's yeah, it's very clear the distinction between the two, um, and and they don't seem to confuse them in the way that we somehow in uh, you know getting our transport numbers drop so low, um, we've. We sort of look to our more sporting cyclists, and and that mm. has become the model. Yeah, of, yeah. that's right. And uh, you know, some of my colleagues that I continue researching uh, with and, and writing papers that they're based at the the Road Safety Institute in the Netherlands. They've looked at the issue of helmet uh, legislation because that is still something. It's not a, a debate that you hear about a lot over here in Australia, but the Netherlands do talk about it. But um, the current uh, line of thinking now is that if they did do something to uh, mandate helmet laws in or helmet wearing in the Netherlands that it would reduce the number of people that ride and uh, they know very much they they know very clearly now that when you do things that reduce the number of people on the road cycling you also increase the level of risk for the people that continue cycling yeah. and that's something they want to avoid Elliot is there I'm I'm looking for a quick fix, but I'm looking for some idea that can be transplanted from the Netherlands to in some way improve our interactions or the way we do it. Can you think of... Yeah, look, well, uh, there was an Australian delegation of, um, they called themselves, or I don't know if they called themselves or someone else called them influentials, uh, that came over in September last year and I gave a talk to them and there were four things that I said that they could um, take back to Australia that they could do uh, that would help improve... Uh, the the level of cycling in Australia and also the safety of, of the cycling that does occur in this country. The first one is separated bike lanes. So we need to make some hard decisions about the allocation of road space. Far, yep. far too much of it has been allocated to cars. Um, lower speed limits as well. There's far too much interaction of cars going 60 kilometres or above with cyclists without any uh, physical protection. I think that's something that needs to change. There's also legislative changes that can occur um, to, um, to I guess, um, rebalance the, uh, the level of responsibility that motorists have when um, having incidents with, with cyclists. And then finally, education and awareness raising needs to come from senior levels of government to, I think, uh, challenge what is in some cases a, a social norm that cyclists shouldn't be on the road. And I think that needs to change as well. There we go. Well, thank you very much for coming in, Elliot. Um, 
If anyone wants to have, take a look at the work you're doing, the URL for your website at the Institute for Sensible Transport is... It's sensibletransport.org.au. Okay, and we'll have a link to that on the podcast write-up when it goes online. We certainly will. Now, just a quick um, run through some um, rides. If you've got a hankering to watch that full moon, tonight is the night. Also be aware that Venus will be low in the uh, northwestern sky and Jupiter a little bit in front of the moon. And that's a ride from the South Morang Railway Station and they should start at about 7.30 up there. Go to the Bike Fun webpage uh, to get the last train from Flinders Street. And coming up uh, next weekend is the two of the last squeaky wheel rides for the Art Plus Climate Equals Change Festival. Uh, each of the rides takes a tour visiting different locations with exhibitions by different artists based around themes um, around climate change. And uh, having done it this last weekend, can highly recommend it. There's some amazing work to be seen. Now it's starting to get muddy, a little bit cold. You want to ride your bike through the mud. Cyclocross has started up again. I think um, one of the Field of Dreams have already had one meeting on No Dirty Deeds is up for about 24th and the 25th of May. I think there are two uh, events Dirty Deeds on. and Fields of Joy on the same weekend. It's a big cyclocross weekend. It is. Get yeah. in, enter, even if you haven't done your training. <laughs> and just briefly, uh, if you are living in North Melbourne, take a look at uh, the Wheelie Good Day on the squeakywheel.com.au. Uh, City of Melbourne are hosting a day to get you out with your bike um, and telling them what you need and want to be able to get around safely on bikes. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.